For those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh Kelso. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Bible Church, and um, it's just such a joy and privilege to be with you ladies this morning and to get to open up God's Word with you. And one of the things that is just such a, a tremendous blessing and, and really overwhelming with encouragement in a sense whenever whenever I get to be around you is just the unwavering attentiveness to the Word of God. Uh, that you possess and and it's so sweet to see how much you uh, love God's word submit your lives to God's word and then not only love to just do Christian events and activities but but to have your lives affected by God's word and to see actual change and implementation to be doers of the word is, is so encouraging several years ago I, I taught your retreat on prayer, uh, and I can't tell you how sweet the encouragement was weeks and even months after of, hey, when you taught about this, you said this, and I've been doing this, it's been such a blessing. And um, just to be like, oh, I said that? I don't even remember what I said. <laughs> and, you, and you remembered it, and you've been implementing it, and you've been growing from it, and that's just a, a testimony to God's grace in your lives, and, um, and so it's just, always, it's just always a blessing. So thank you for having me. Uh, with you guys this morning. Uh, thank you for your commitment to Wellspring to to do the very things that I just mentioned, which is to want to submit your life under God's word for the sake of sanctification and growth and just being a disciplined woman, uh, honoring him in all, the, all that you do and keeping in mind the call from God's word, the instruction from God's word for the Christian to be faithful to shepherd their heart before him in worship. And then to have that flow into your homes and have that flow into your ministry. Uh, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about really one of the, the sweetest gifts from the Lord and one of the sweetest impacts for us today of the gospel on the Christian life. And that's prayer. And it, it, it's good to think about prayer, to intentionally plan for prayer, to remember uh, the gift that prayer is because it's often one of the most neglected disciplines of the Christian life. Um, a, a story is told in a small town in the South. Uh, many of you have heard this story before if you were at the retreat where for many years this town had been uh, a dry town, meaning that they didn't serve alcohol there. And one day a businessman in the area decided to build a tavern. In response to this new tavern, a group of Christians from a local church, they got together and they became concerned and planned an all-night meeting to ask God to intervene. Well, shortly after the prayer meeting that night, lightning struck the bar and it burned the bar to the ground. In the aftermath of the fire, the owner of the tavern sued the church, claiming that the prayers of the congregation were responsible for the loss. But the church hired a lawyer to argue in court that they were not responsible. And after his initial review of the case, the presiding judge began the trial with an official statement. He said, no matter how this case comes out, one thing is clear. The tavern owner believes in prayer and the Christians do not. <laughs> prayer requires faith. Prayer requires faith. It, it requires belief in God that he hears, that he cares, that he draws near in those moments. And much can be revealed 
about you, much is revealed about me, much is revealed about the Christian when your prayer life is examined. Uh, Nothing reveals the state of your spiritual health or your level of faith quite like prayer does. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, he says, prayer beyond any question is the highest activity of the human soul. And therefore, it is at the same time the ultimate test of one's true spiritual condition. There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Ultimately, therefore, one discovers that the real condition of his spiritual life when he examines himself in private, when he is alone with God. And have we not all known what it is to find that somehow we have less to say to God when we are alone than when we are in the presence of others? It should not be so, but it often is, so that it is when we have left the realm of activities and outward dealings with other people and are alone with God that we really know where we stand in a spiritual sense. If you find great joy in talking with people about the greatness of God, but neglect to talk with God about the greatness of God, there is a level of hypocrisy in your life that needs to be rooted out. Uh, Prayer is a a gift from God for us to interact with him, to present our requests to him, for us to worship him and fellowship with him. And what we do in private in our communication with God reveals much more clearly where we're at spiritually than what we're willing to do in front of others. Oswald Chambers says this, he says, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And what we find is that prayer is a discipline. It's it's a discipline that takes self-control. It takes trust. It takes planning. It takes faith. And prayer isn't a preliminary to the things that God would have us do that are important. And oftentimes it fits that way in our life. We pray before we eat. We pray before we go to bed. We pray before a major event or activity, and it's almost viewed as this preliminary thing that we do so that we can move on to the important things. And that's not God's desire for prayer. It should be something we do before those things, but not because it's a preliminary activity, because it's foundational, it's core, it's crucial. We need it. We need prayer to just flow out of who we are because we love God. And we recognize our need for him in all of life's instances. But it must be more than the thing we do before we start something. It needs to be something we do intentionally out of worshipful love for our Savior. I I would doubt that any of us would say that we've arrived at prayer uh, in our prayer life. It's something that we will constantly be growing in. it might be something like that of a, of a knife that just because you sharpen it once doesn't mean you never sharpen it again, right? You're going to need to constantly be sharpening this practice of prayer. You can never slice through a tomato too easily. <laughs> you can always make it a little sharper, a little better. 
And in so doing, what we find is that prayer is one of the most sweet, precious, intimate, encouraging, emboldening, comforting practices in the Christian life. And at the same time, it can be incredibly intimidating. It can be confusing. Have you ever wondered what you should pray, how you should pray in a specific situation? Maybe you feel at times that prayer is pointless. I feel lonely. I've prayed so much. I don't perceive any change. I don't feel any differently about my circumstances. It's ineffective. And in all honesty, I just don't know where to start. Well, God loves his people. God loves to answer prayer. And what I want to do this morning as we look at some different texts and we consider prayers is I want to help give you some practical tools to know where to start to have some foundational things to be able to grow from and hopefully grow in and grow from. And hopefully what you'll find this morning is that wherever you are in your prayer life, uh, this will help fortify you in it as we look at God's word. That we would be intentional with our prayer lives, that we would be disciplined with our prayer lives. In the, in the same way that if you simply woke up each morning without a plan to read your Bible, without a plan of what to read in your Bible, um, could that person still end up in God's word and benefit from it? Absolutely. But how much more for the person who has designated a specific time with a specific plan to read, with a specific practice to make sure that you're alert in your reading, would that person benefit? Do you have prayer in your life that you benefit from now? Absolutely. If you have a specific plan and practice for prayer, could you benefit more? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it does. It requires discipline. John Piper has a a convicting quote. He says, one of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. No matter where you find yourself in your life, uh, if your prayer life is not robust, it's not because you don't have enough time. Maybe it's Candy Crush for you. Maybe it's Netflix. Maybe, I'll say it, it's Pinterest. (laughs) Okay, whatever it is, uh, if prayer is lacking in your life, It's not for a lack of time. And I think that's helpful to realize because sometimes you get into a lesson like this and you start to feel convicted and, oh, I got to, I got to add another thing. I was just starting to read my Bible in the morning and now I've got to add time to pray. And how am I going to fit all this in? And you start to feel overwhelmed. And it's important to realize that the commandments of the Lord aren't burdensome. And this is God's kindness to you to add another discipline into your Christian life isn't heaping another burden on your plate that you have to figure out how you're going to handle. This is the kindness of God to give to you the gift of being able to come before him in prayer. And and if there's a, a problem in your mind in regards to adding another thing to your schedule, the problem isn't because there's something wrong with prayer. It's our thinking about it. It's, it's the priorities that we have in it. <clears throat> so I just want to encourage you as we consider these things and, and we look at some patterns of prayer and some practices for prayer, uh, recognize this as it is, a gift from the Lord, a kindness of God, a grace to us that we would be able to come to him in prayer. 
Now, before we go further in our study, I think it's important that we define what is prayer. That we just talk about, when we talk about prayer, uh, what do we mean by it? John Bunyan has a a helpful, I think, uh, definition of what prayer is. It's pretty comprehensive. It doesn't capture every single thing that we could say about prayer. But I think there's some key things that are incredibly helpful to consider when thinking through prayer. He says this, and I believe this is in your notes. He says, prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. There's a lot in there. Now, I want to make something clear. That's the ideal of what prayer would be. But it's not always where we start. And I think it's important to realize that while that's the ideal of how we would come to the Lord in prayer, we don't need to wait till we're all that that communicates before we pray. And there's a tendency for us to sometimes think this way, right? Uh, My heart's not in the right place. I don't want to be legalistic in my Bible reading. So I'm not going to read today until I get my heart in the right place because I don't want to be legalistic about it. And yet the reality is, is that God's greatest gift to help root out legalism is his word. (laughs) So you don't wait until you can conjure up a rooting out of legalism to read your Bible. No, you you bring your sin laden heart (laughs) before God's word, trusting that he's going to do what he loves to do through his word and his people. And you practice the discipline anyway. Well, prayer is the same way. This is the ideal of what prayer would look like. But you know what? If you come to the Lord and you're not very sensible in that moment and you're not really depending upon the Holy Spirit like you should in your prayer, you don't go, "Uh, that's it. I can't talk to the Lord until I get my heart right. No, you confess sin where you need to confess and you say, God, please help me. I don't even know what to pray right now. Help guide my prayers that they would be honoring to you, that they would be pleasing to you. So prayer is sincere, it's sensible, it's affectionate. Uh, prayer is, is, is communication with God. It's not a hidden language where we just grunt and babble, but there's a, a sensible nature to it. It's affectionate, it's sincere. You pour out your heart or your soul to God. Um, there's no masks that need to be put on, no shows that need to be performed, but you do all of this through Christ. Prayer has been enabled through Christ. In the strength of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised. And this is really helpful. A a vibrant God honoring prayer life is going to be characterized by praying for the very things that God has already said he's going to do. Which demonstrates the importance of knowing God's word. And how the discipline of Bible reading and shepherding your heart with God's word shouldn't be separated from the discipline of prayer. These things aid and help and support one another. And so we pray things such as God has promised. We pray things that are in accordance to his word. And we pray things uh, that, that we know are in accordance with what God loves, particularly for his people, for his church. We pray for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. Even Jesus himself in the garden presented humbly his request to the Lord to remove the cup if there was any way 
and yet said, not my will, but yours be done, and submitted his will to the Father's plan. And so we can submit our desires and our requests to the Lord, um, humbly trusting that his ways are best in life's various circumstances. Uh, that's the ideal of what prayer is and, and what should ultimately be the purpose of prayer. Well, John fourteen thirteen I think, is, is very helpful as we consider one of the blessings of prayer. And we see Jesus say in John 14, 30, 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the father may be glorified in the son. This is so encouraging. Prayer is not something that is just kind of a good thing for you when you can get to it. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He loves to answer prayer so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Why should we seek a disciplined life of prayer? Because it glorifies God. And, and I know that's the, the church answer to everything, that we would give glory to God. That, that God's glory is what's most important. What's the goal of the Christian life? To glorify God. What should be our pursuit in everyday activities? To glorify God. Uh, why did Jesus die on the cross? To glorify God. What's the common theme throughout all of scripture? It's the glory of God. And yet the reality is, is that's true. And that's what we should be about ultimately is the glory of God. And so prayer, our prayer life shouldn't be motivated out of I just feel a lot better when I pray or man, it just really provides a connectedness for me and God or just, I don't know how I'd get through the day if I didn't pray. No, no, something far more significant and sweet and precious and awesome is at stake in your prayer life beyond just how it impacts you. The glory of God is at stake. In what and how we pray. How sweet is that? And how convicting is that? If my prayer life is not as God calls it to be, I'm actually missing out on an opportunity to bring glory to my Savior whom I love, who died for me, who gave his life for me. This is helpful to realize. Turn to Revelation 5. What does God think about the prayers of his people? Revelation 5. We're going to just look at verses 6 through 8. So John is having a, a vision into heaven. He's having, having insight in this moment to the throne room of God. And in verse six, he says, and I saw between the thrones. So this is Revelation five, starting in verse six. And I saw between the throne, the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers 
of the saints. The center of heaven are the prayers of God's people. Is prayer important? Does it matter? Does God hear? Does he know the prayers of his people? Yes. Yes, he does. Now, what we're going to do next is you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to spend some time simply looking at a, at a model of prayer. There's no command in the passage that we're going to look at for us as to how we must pray. But what we're going to do is we're going to kind of be a fly on the wall of Paul's prayer for the Colossians and just make some observations. And, and what I hope as we've been talking through prayer and, and to different levels, maybe some of us are feeling really beat up <laughs> or convicted and, and really challenged. What I'd love to do is just put some, some ideas from scripture, some patterns of prayer, some tools in your tool belt. If you're wondering, I, I do need to grow in prayer, prayer. Where should I start? Well, here would be a great place to start in the outline that we're going to go through simply looking at Paul's prayers and then what we're going to do from there is we're going to talk about some hindrances to prayer what are some some things that I should be on guard against or or aware of to guard myself and then what are some aids to prayer what are some particular things that can be helpful for me as I seek to grow in prayer and then we'll wrap up with prayer and the disciplines of my heart and my home and ministry. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to start right now with a model of prayer. That should be Roman numeral number two in your outline, a model of prayer. We're going to see observations from Paul's prayer for the Colossians. And what we're going to see is this broken down really into two categories, Paul's thanksgiving and Paul's petitions. And he starts his prayer with another number of things for which he gives thanks to God, and then he uh, moves into or transitions into a number of petitions that he pr- presents to God. It's important to understand that everything, as we consider this, that is good comes from God. Everything that is good comes from God. It only comes from God. So God is the one that Paul starts his prayer giving thanks to. If anything good comes from you or anything good comes from me, it's because God has put it there. And this should have a a humbling effect on us. And this is helpful as we consider our prayer life and how we pray for others and how we pray for ourselves. That to start with thanksgiving is a great place to start. Even in our encouragement of one another To start with a praise to God for what is good in one another is a great place to start. And and think about this practically. Think about how this would work. If you were to go to somebody and say, hey, when you did this thing, that was so encouraging to me. Thank you for doing that. Those are kind words. Those are encouraging words. And yet, who's the focus of attention in that moment? The person, right? Now, now, what if you went to that person and you said, um, hey, Farah, when you watched our dog when we went on vacation, <laughs> that was sacrificial love for us, which enabled us to have a sweet time of fellowship as a family. And the fact that you would give up your time and resources is an evidence of God's work in your life that truly blessed our family. Thank you for that sacrificial love and care for us um, that you did. 
Um, that was God's kindness to us. Now who's the attention on? God working through her. And if I were to say something like that, it would embarrass her incredibly, apparently, <laughs> because her face is bright red. <laughs> but, but if you do that, well, well now, now you're not only encouraging the person, but you're helping them maintain right thinking about God's work in them and through them. That, oh, yeah, that wasn't me. That was God working in me. I wouldn't do that if left to my own devices, or I would do it with wicked intent. And, and yet, yeah, that was God's grace in my life. And that's, that's encouraging and that's helpful. And, and that's what Paul does here. He's going to uh, identify several things in the believers in Colossae, but he doesn't puff them up in his encouragement or praise God for how great they are. He gives thanks to God for what he's doing in them. So let's look at that together. We're going to start reading verses 3 through 8, and then we'll do the next section as we transition into Paul's petitions. So Colossians 1, starting in verse 3. Are we all there? Perfect. Okay, Colossians 1. Paul says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just, just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant or slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the spirit. So Paul's thanksgiving. What does he start with first? It's number one. He thanks God for their faith in Jesus. That's your first blank in your outline. Faith in Jesus. And we see that in the first half of verse four. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, we give thanks to God for your faith in Christ Jesus. And this is where the gospel starts. It starts with faith in Jesus. The believers in Colossae, they had faith. And this faith was in Christ. And in order to have the gospel in your life, you have to have faith. You have to have faith in Jesus. You could have faith in something or someone and have the strongest faith. And that faith alone won't save you. You have to have the right object of that faith. It's better to have small faith in Jesus than the biggest faith possible in the wrong person or thing. And Paul actually drives this home all the more later in chapter one of Colossians by spelling out exactly who the right Jesus is. Because there were heresies attacking the Colossians and they were presenting to them a false Jesus. So it's not only having faith in Jesus, but it's having faith in the right Jesus. Uh, so, some of you may know this, some of you may not, but and, and I know I'm, I'm probably speaking to the wrong audience here, maybe, but do any of you know who Michael Jordan is? <laughs> okay, all right, okay. Uh, 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 um, seldom known fact, yeah, okay, Michael Jordan, okay, okay, okay. So, seldom no fact, truth, okay? My brother-in-law is Michael Jordan. Isn't that pretty cool? 
Okay, what are all the benefits that you think one might experience of having your brother-in-law be Michael Jordan? Think about holidays with Michael Jordan, right? Um, now, the reality is, is that my brother-in-law, Michael Jordan, is five foot eight, <laughs> 270 pounds, <laughs> accountant, balding, <laughs> So he has that in common. <laughs> um, <laughs> Caucasian man. It's a different Michael Jordan. <laughs> Although when he stayed at the Best Western, they thought he was really Michael Jordan. <laughs> the other one. And he's going, if I was Michael Jordan, I wouldn't be staying at the Best Western. <laughs> yeah. All of the benefits you think you might receive by knowing Michael Jordan, the basketball player, you don't automatically get them just because you claim to know a Michael Jordan when it's a different one. I get much better benefits than what I think I could get from the basketball player knowing my brother-in-law. He is a sweet, humble, kind guy. I'm so glad my sister's married to him. But he doesn't even know how to hold a basketball. <laughs> That's okay. Your faith has to be in the right Jesus. And scripture is clear on who that Jesus is. There's lots of people who claim to love Jesus, right? We experience that very frequently, especially if you live in Mesa. Okay? Oh, yeah, we love Jesus. We're Christians. Oh, let's talk about that Jesus. you got to have faith in the right Jesus. The Colossians did. And think about this for a moment. Relationships are hard in the body of Christ. If you have not been hurt by somebody, you will be. You'll be sinned against. And yet there's never a time where you lack something to thank God for in another Christian. Because they're a child of God. And right off the bat, Paul starts thanking God for their faith in Jesus. And listen, from the, the person you get along with best in the body of Christ to the person that's most difficult, you can always shepherd your heart towards compassionate thanksgiving if it's another believer because you can praise god for the faith that he's granted them faith in christ jesus number two next we see paul in his thanksgiving um, give thanks for their love for the saints that's your second blank saints their love for the saints first was faith in jesus number two Paul gives thanks for their love for the saints. This is the next manifestation of the gospel in their lives, which is really sweet just to observe where Paul starts and where he goes here. He starts with the gift of salvation, and now he's moving into some of the practical key outpourings of what one who is a child of God produces, and that's love for the saints. We see that in the second half of verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. There are, there are results of genuine faith. Faith in Jesus produces specific things. The gospel takes effect in someone's heart by the gift of faith from God. And one of the first things that's shown for the one who has faith in Jesus is a love for others. It's a love for others. You can consider John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Christian is called to love God and love each other. And this is coming out of 
the saints in Colossae. And, and so it's good to think about these things because you can both give thanks to God for these things and you can petition God for these things. God, help me to believe you. Help me to have faith in you. Thank you for granting to me saving faith. And I pray that today you would help me abound in confidence that you are who you say you are. That you are faithful. Help me to have faith in you. And help me to love others. What a great way to start your prayers. Great things to give thanks for. Great things to petition for. And think about this. One of the greatest ways that you can actually guard yourself from sin is by cultivating love for others. Selfishness. Greed. Covetousness. Anger. Bitterness. Discontentment. All of these can be set aside or displaced by love for others above yourself. It's not simply enough to not be selfish of somebody else. God calls us to a higher standard. He calls us to love for others. And and notice how Paul thanks God for their love for all the saints. There weren't some believers that they loved and others that they didn't. There wasn't discrimination in their love for others. And so it should be for us. As we consider our love for one another, particularly in this body of Christ, would you be known as one who has love for all the saints in Grace Bible Church? Or do you have your pocket of people that you're comfortable with? People that are kind of fit into your wheelhouse of where you're willing to conduct yourself in love. But then there's other people that you're less comfortable with and they're harder for you to love and you're struggling. Well, the Christian should be known for love for all the saints. That doesn't mean everybody has to be your best friend. (laughs) It's just not possible. And yet at the same time where opportunity allows to have self-giving, sacrificial consideration of others needs above your own we need to be eager to extend that regardless of the recipient and really how sweet would it be if each one of us had eyes for each other in the church that way we talk about this in student ministries as a staff a lot and we pray for this a lot that we have that we would have eyes for those on the fringe Um, that we would have eyes for those who just you can tell You would never think they don't fit in, but they always feel like they don't fit in. How can we embrace that person? How can we pursue that person? How can we bring them into what we're doing? And the goal isn't that we would leave the relationships that we have that are sweet and close and neglect those to go try to build up more new, sweet and close relationships so that we can then leave those to go try to build. No, it's that we would get our arms around as many people as we can and draw them into our community of what we're doing and that we would present ourselves in a way that's inviting and warm and loving towards others. Love for the saints. Next, number three, first we saw faith in Jesus. Then we saw love for the saints. The next thing that Paul gives thanks to God for is the Colossians hope in heaven. Their hope in heaven. Number three in your outline is the blank is heaven. Paul gives thanks for their hope in heaven. We see that in verse five. 
because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Do you see how creative my outlines are? (laughs) It's right there. They're hope in heaven. Believers have a special hope, a hope that's worthy of thanking God for. There is a hope laid up for believers or reserved or in store in heaven. And a Christian can endure hardship and endure persecution and persevere through trial and press on in tragedy, all because Christians have a hope in something outside of ourselves and a hope of a world beyond this one. We have hope in the work of Christ, which has given to us a hope in eternity, in heaven. And whatever trials or struggles or hardships we face in this life, they are, as Paul says, but momentary light affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. That's in Philippians 1. We have a hope in heaven that radically impacts how we live today. Because God is so faithful. And we're not citizens of this world. So when this country starts to unravel and we see things going directions that are difficult, we actually don't lack hope. Because we're citizens of heaven. And we serve a God who is sovereign and good and powerful and loves us and is near to us and cares for us. And this is something that's been so, so sweet to watch. Watching our dear friends this last year suffer, even to the point of death. And as they were nearing death in their cancers, um, to have peace and joy and hope and to be able to make much of Christ when things were circumstantially at their worst, to say, um, actually, circumstantially, I couldn't be better. Because I have a hope beyond this life. And to hear Jacob Hantla uh, echo Matt Dodd's words and say, if me having cancer means I'll be more like Jesus and Grace Bible Church will be more pleasing to the Lord, I'll be that guy. I want to be that guy. If that's what would please my Savior, that is only rooted out of a hope beyond the moment of this day. What a sweet gift from the Lord that we have that. And what an appropriate thing to pray that God would help us believe. To thank God when we have that hope in heaven and to plead with God when we need to remember the hope of heaven that we possess. Moses is a great example of this. You can write down Hebrews eleven twenty four through 27, where Moses uh, passes up the fleeting pleasures of this world for the reward uh, laid up for him in heaven. Following Christ and suffering is infinitely better than rejecting Christ and experiencing the best that this world has to offer. Number four, the next thing Paul thanks God for in the Colossians is their growth in fruit. Fruit, their growth in fruit. That's your fourth blank there, is growth in fruit. We see this in verse six, which has come to you just as in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Here we see that the gospel produces fruit, both in personal transformation of individuals and in corporate growth of the church. More disciples growing 
more disciples. The gospel not only saves individuals, but changes their life and produces fruit. And Paul here is looking for evidences that the gospel playing itself out in the life of the Colossians, and he can see it. There is growth in fruit. There is a growth in holiness. There is a growth in the progress of the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth. The Great Commission is being fulfilled. The Great Commission is being fulfilled and fruit fruit is growing and this is all pleasing to God. And so another thing that we can thank God for or ask God for is that there would be fruit and evidences of his work in our life practically. That there would be things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control flowing from us in life's various circumstances. That there would be fruit of one who has been affected by the gospel manifested in one who proclaims the gospel. God loves to do this in his people. And then lastly, the next thing that we see Paul thank God for is this authentication from leaders. Authentication from leaders. And this is this is one that really sticks out to me and was really um, challenging for me to kind of get my mind around and really helpful for me when I did. Uh, salvation is only by grace, and it's ultimately only God's work. And yet God uses humans as channels of that grace. And for the Colossians, Epaphras was that. Epaphras brought the good news of the gospel to the Colossians, and they learned it from him. He was their mentor in their faith, and he was Paul's representative and fellow slave of Christ. Do you see that in verse 7? You learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And then here's the authentication from leaders that takes place in this. He also informed us of your love in the spirit. He testified of the genuineness of their faith. He testified to the reality of their love in the spirit. The Colossians leader authenticated their faith from a worldly perspective or from a human standpoint. Obviously, he doesn't know the heart. But when the Colossians were close to a mature believer who loved them and had been training them, he could authenticate the reality of the change that God had done in them. This is definitely something that the gospel produces and something to give thanks to God for. And listen, in order to have authentication from your leaders, uh, you actually have to have leaders in your life. Captain obvious. <laughs> but it's good to think about. There, there's not a category for rogue Christians. There's not a category for I'm not religious, but I, I'm spiritual and I just want Jesus. Jesus died for a church. For his church. For his people. He calls you to love others. He doesn't call you to just love him. And in fact, he says multiple times in scripture that the validity of your love for him is expressed through love for others. So to think that you could navigate life independent from close personal relationships with other believers is foolish. God has a design for his people that they're connected with one another and that everyone is under authority. We are all under authority. We should all have spiritual leaders and mentors in our life. God's design for this is clear. No one is exempt 
from authority and from human authority. Yes, we're all under the authority of God, but we all have human authority as well. I'm under authority. I'm an elder in this church. I, I didn't lose my being under authority when I became an elder. I am under the authority of my elders. I'm still a sheep. <laughs> I'm, I'm still a sheep here. And so my ministry and my life and who I am is all under the authority of my elders. And so it is with all of us. So consider your participation in the body of Christ. Uh, consider your participation in this church. Do you have people in your life who can testify to these things in you? To your love in the spirit? Have you opened the door to allow others to speak into your life in this way? Or have you built in contingencies? I'll get this close, but not closer than that. Or I'll submit to these leaders, but as long as they do X, Y, and Z. And the moment they don't fit within my box of how my leaders must be, uh, well, now, you know, who are you to speak into my life? <clears throat> they must treat me the right way. They must pursue me the right way. They must confront me the right way. That's when I'll allow people close to me. A question maybe to consider would be this one. Do you place unbiblical contingencies on your relationships before you're willing to do what God calls you to do? Right? Um, God doesn't call you to submit your life to just anyone. You shouldn't go to a church that teaches a false gospel that isn't actually really a church. And yet... When you're under authority and you're in a church who fears the Lord and submits to his word, it will never be perfect. Your elders are not perfect. We will sin probably against you, <laughs> probably have already. And yet we're still called to submit to our, to our leaders, to be near to our leaders, to position ourselves intentionally to have those who can testify to what God is doing in our lives. This is God's design. And listen, I recognize that this is uncomfortable, that this can be hard, especially if you've been hurt in the past, especially. And, 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 and it just happens. People get hurt. And, and sometimes there's associations that come when you start to be in an environment that feels a lot like a previous environment where you got hurt. And that's not an excuse to not be obedient. Um, years ago when I was a young, a young teenager. So I have, uh, I come from a large family. Um, I'm the third of three birth children, biological children. And then we adopted a little girl. My parents did when I was nine through a private adoption. And then my parents adopted seven, uh, biological siblings from the Philippines when I was 11. So there's six, I have six sisters, four brothers. Okay. And my siblings, particularly from the Philippines, were so tiny and could eat their weight in whatever we were eating. I mean, you wouldn't believe Costco bags of rice that we would have, 12 gallons of milk a week that we would go through. Uh, you can just imagine. So my mom, right, easy meals. You know those little Smokies, the little cocktail sausages? She'd put those in crock pots with barbecue sauce. And that would be like, we'd put that on rice or whatever, and that would be an easy meal she could have for us. Well, being a, a growing young boy, 
Uh, I think I ate like 40 of those one night. <laughs> I don't think I'm exaggerating. <laughs> uh, because I got strep throat that night and lost all of them. <laughs> I got the, one of the sickest times of my life. And uh, to this day, I cannot stand the smell of Little Smokies. <laughs> Makes me sick to my stomach. Now, the Little Smokies weren't the problem. Maybe eating 40 of them were, but the Little Smokies in and of themselves were not the problem. There, there was actually a sickness that produced an undesirable outcome that now has created bad feelings when I'm exposed to this thing that really didn't, wasn't the problem. Um, that, that's, a, that's a trite, comical example of something that is very lasting and serious and sad and heartbreaking. And that's that sometimes people get hurt in churches and they forsake what is good and kind and helpful and a gift from the Lord and commanded because it feels bad because of associations. The, the problem with whatever hurt you've experienced is not God's design within his church. It's sin. It's the effects of sin. And whatever you feel or whatever you've experienced, just know God's grace is greater. And in the same way that you don't read your Bible, you don't stop reading your Bible because your heart's in the wrong place, and so I got to get my heart right. You don't stop going to church because it's hard. Um, I was reading with my kids the other day uh, a book, and I came across the most profound statement in any children's book I've ever read. Who has heard of the book Frog on a Log? <laughs> Anybody? Okay. All right. You guys got to see this because it, it, it's the funniest slide in a book that is so good. And we just, we just stopped and we laughed as a family. The book is about this frog and a cat. The cat's on a mat. And the frog is supposed to sit on a log. But he doesn't want to sit on a log because there's splinters and it's uncomfortable. But he's a frog. And the frog needs to sit on a log. And so the cat in the whole book is explaining where all different animals are to sit in their appropriate places. <laughs> to convince the frog that he needs to embrace his appropriate place on a log. And at one point, he says... Parrots sit on carrots, lions sit on irons. Okay, I guess iron is the only thing they could figure out that ride with lion. <laughs> lion, iron, however it works. Anyway, and the frog says, that doesn't sound very comfortable. And the cat says, it's not about being comfortable, it's about doing the right thing. <laughs> Convincing the frog why he needs to sit on the log not about being comfortable it's about doing the right thing i just thought huh and we just talked about that as a family for a while <laughs> yet the right thing isn't always feel comfortable and yet god calls us to do it it takes an enormous amount of faith to to open up your life to put it on a platter and to push it forward towards others and you know what that's what we do in small group when we confess sin that's what we do when we share prayer requests that's what we do when we, when we confess our struggles and our weaknesses. That's what we do when we draw near to people, even though it's really, really, really hard. 
And we do it not because people will never fail us. We do it because we trust God. He will never fail us, even in people's sin. And so we do, we do what's hard. And then the blessing of one whose life has been laid bare and transparent when someone can say, hey, um, we saw this thing. There has been tangible growth. Look at what God is doing in your life. Think of the encouragement that comes. There is a dear couple in our church that I sat with uh, a couple years ago and just had some conversations about parenting. And you know what? They got all the more closer to me and my family um, after I admonished them. It was the sweetest thing. And now, as time has passed, there's been tremendous growth and fruit. And I just had the opportunity to, to thank the husband and say, you know, there was an opportunity for you to chafe and to separate yourself, to feel judged, to feel condemned, whatever, all the things that come when somebody corrects you. Uh, and you, you just got closer to me. I feel so loved and honored as your friend and as your pastor. And here's the way that God has grown you. You should be encouraged. That's, that's God's desire for his church, that that could happen, that that would happen. Consider small groups. Uh, I, I won't go into that, but um, to what degree can you encourage others and affirm what God's doing in them? To what degree can others do that for you? If you're just not intentionally connected with others in the way that Grace Bible Church has sought to do that is in our small group ministry. Um, you don't have to be in small groups to be a Christian. It's not a biblical mandate. <laughs> it's not a, a biblical mandate from your elders. It is a strong desire from your elders. And it is a practical way to practice the biblical mandates of the one another's at Grace Bible Church. Different circumstances, different seasons may allow for it in different capacities. Uh, I help oversee or I oversee the small group ministry as a whole. If it's just always been hard for you to plug in for whatever reason, I would love to talk with you. Um, and, and I kind of have a little bit of a pulse on all the different groups at, at Grace Bible Church. And if small groups just aren't a means of being able to, to um, something that you can take advantage, I'd love to talk with you. Just, okay, well, let's come up with a plan of how you can practically go after these things or what that's looking like. And how can I be available to help you do that um, all the more? Because it is important that we're connected to one another. That's Paul's thanksgiving. Next, we see his petitions, Paul's petitions. And we see that in verses 9 through 14. Verses 9 through 14. So he's given thanks to God for these things. And now he's going to actually pray for some specific things for the Colossians. We'll read verses 9 through 14 together of Colossians 1. He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask. What is he asking for? That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Verse 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption or redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul starts here and I categorize the first uh, petition as this. That he, he prays for their thinking. 
He prays for their thinking. For this reason, in verse 9, also since the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding, all thinking categories. We need to know God's truth and know how to apply God's word. What do you do? Why do you do it? And how do you do it in life's various circumstances? And the fact that they would be filled with this, it's the idea of being moved along. It's like wind filling a sail on a sailboat that propels that boat forward. And that's what he asked for on behalf of the Colossians, that they would be filled in such a way with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is the idea of fighting what you feel with what you know, to think properly, reasonably, appropriately, biblically in various circumstances so that you can control and handle how you feel. Feelings are a tremendous blessing from God, and yet they are also incredibly fickle. And the tail wags the dog when our emotions drive us. Rather, our thinking needs to feed our emotions. Our our right thinking should never submit itself to our emotions in a various circumstance. And our emotions should submit themselves to thinking. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes we feel really bad about a circumstance that we should have joy in. And we have to go, no, I'm going to be joyful. Mm. (laughs) I don't feel it right now, but I'm going to choose to trust God. Because I know that's what he desires of me. I'm thinking rightly. I understand his will. And I know how to appropriate it in this, mor- in this moment. Next, Paul prays for their decisions. And these things are really connected. This is what's going to flow out of right thinking. That they would walk in a manner. See, he even prays for their thinking so that they would then be able to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. To please him in all respects. All respects, bearing fruit in every good work. Paul prays that they would make the right decision and the best decision in every way. The decision that will bring about the most glory to God, the most spiritual good in every choice. And what we find is that sometimes it's not so much about the end decision, the final outcome, but it's about how we make the decision, how we walk in those things. And that's what he prays for, that they would be pleasing to God in every aspect. And maybe you've had a circumstance where you've had choice A and choice B, and you've thought, I don't know which one to choose. And the reality might be that both of them are perfectly fine. It's not a moral decision. And what's more important than if you choose A or if you choose B is the kind of person you are as you go through the process of making that decision. That you would walk in that process in a manner that's pleasing to God. That you would bear fruit in that situation. And so to think about your decisions this way can be really helpful in your prayer. It's not so much, God, which job should I choose? Although that's an okay thing to pray for. Should I take job A or job B? But, oh, God, how can I conduct myself in a way that makes much of Christ as I consider these options? How can I bear fruit in this process? Would you please help me to do that? Whatever decision I end up making, help me to do it in a way that gives glory and honor to Jesus Christ because of the kind of person that I am in making that decision. And help me know which one I should do. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's okay to pray that too. That's what God calls us to do. Next, we see a, a, a steadfastness. Paul prays for a steadfastness in them, that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. And this steadfastness is to remain under a difficult circumstance. Patience is an emotional quietness in the face of unfavorable circumstances. It's to stay with it. It's to not give up. And you don't need to be steadfast. You don't need steadfastness or endurance if things are easy. And there's an assumption built in here that for the Christian, life is hard. The hope of the gospel, the promise of the gospel is not that all your hopes and dreams will come true and life will be easy and sorrow will be lifted. There is a promise of that, but that's actually to come. This life now on this earth, which has sin, is actually hard. And those who follow Jesus are called to take up their cross and follow him. And those who are called to follow Jesus are called to share in his sufferings. The, the, the burden that is light, lightened, um, the blessings that are given are not easy lives. It's you're no longer under the condemnation of sin. You have hope in eternity. You have a relationship with God. And the reality is, is that when we're thinking rightly about those things, they cast a shadow on our various hardships and circumstances that allow us to be able to consider whatever circumstance we're in joy. But it doesn't make circumstances easy. It just lets us experience joy in God in them. And so Paul prays that they would have steadfastness. And then lastly, he prays, I categorize this for their worldview. You could say that they would have heavenly thinking or that they would have eternal perspective, um, however you might want to say that. But he prays for their worldview. And what he does is he just points them to the gospel and talks about how God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And, and then he just bursts into this, for, for he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This life isn't it. As bad and as hard as it may get for us on earth, it's nothing compared to what God has done for us in the gospel. This is a worldview that's fixed on something beyond this world. is the kindness of God to rescue us and save us and oh how we need to think often and rightly about what God has done in the gospel if you woke up every morning and the first thing you thought was oh I was a child of wrath deserving eternal punishment and damnation just righteous wrath for God, from God for all eternity. And out of no doing of my own, God rescued me. And he died for me. And he bled for me. And all of the punishment that I deserve for every sin I've ever committed and will commit was placed on him at the cross. And he absorbed the full wrath and fury of God for me. Oh, thank you. 
Help me to, help me to be faithful today. I, I think each of our lives would be so blessed if we could hold on to that truth and have a right thinking about those things and maintain that each moment of each day. Now, this pattern of prayer is hopefully helpful in thinking through some things to pray for, to pray about, to thank God for. And yet, here, here's the reality. Prayer is hard. It's a, it's a discipline. There are snares. There are hindrances. There are, are potential uh, attacks or, or stumbling blocks that come our way in our attempt to pray. And it's helpful to recognize these things in order to guard against them. So what are some potential hindrances to a life dependent on prayer? What are some potential threats to a consistent prayer life? That's what we want to look at next. Hopefully, considering Paul's prayer, you have some things in mind. If you're looking, man, where, where should I start to pray? Pray through that. Pray through that outline. Just start with that. But now, what should be some things that you need to be on guard of as you want to fortify your life of prayer? Well, first, letter A is a lack lack of belief or faith. What's a potential hindrance to a life of dependent prayer? It's a lack of belief or faith. What are some things that we must believe? Well, we must believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Uh, Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We must also believe that God is there and he's interested in our prayers, right? James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We must understand that his answer may not be what we want or how we want it or when we want it, but that his ways are best. Psalm 1830, as for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. It takes faith to pray. And a lack of belief or a lack of faith can be a huge hindrance to a consistent life of worshipful prayer. Next, a potential hindrance is a lack of persistence. That's your next blank under letter B, lack of persistence. We're used to immediate responses in day-to-day life, right? We post something on Facebook or social media, and how long does it take you before you're looking at your phone to see how many people have liked it or hearted it or (laughs) ha-ha'd it or exclamation pointed it or whatever or frowny faced it? How dare they? (laughs) <laughs> and not receiving immediate responses, it, it, it can actually give us a long-term need to be prayerful. Listen, we want immediate responses and not getting those can be a threat to prayer. And yet sometimes God's kindness to us is not answering our prayers in the ways that we want immediately so that we continue to pursue him and seek him and depend on him in humble prayer. How many times have you heard, or maybe this has been you, where you've been in a a trial or a struggle and you've prayed, God, help me to think rightly in this. Take this from me, if at all possible. Relieve this trial. Relieve me from this struggle. And you pray that every day for weeks and months. And then he does. And you look back and you go, that was one of the sweetest times of my life where I, I depended on God in ways I never had before. And it was actually because he didn't remove it right away. 
it's good to persist in our petitions to the Lord. Sometimes God doesn't give us what we want right away because we ask for the wrong reason. We ask selfishly. Next, what's another hindrance to a life dependent on prayer? We saw a lack of belief, a lack of persistence. Sometimes a key reason or a key threat or hindrance to a life of prayer is simply a lack of preparedness. That's letter C, a lack of preparedness. John Piper in Desiring God says this, unless I'm badly mistaken, one of the main reasons so many of God's children don't have a significant prayer life is not so much that we don't want to, but that we don't plan to. If you want to take a four-week vacation, you don't just get up one summer morning and say, hey, let's go today. You won't have anything ready. You won't know where to go. Nothing has been planned, but that is how many of us treat prayer. We get up day after day and realize that significant times of prayer should be a part of our life, but nothing's ever ready. We don't know where to go. Nothing has been planned. No time, no place, no procedure. And we all know that the opposite of planning is not a wonderful flow of deep, spontaneous experiences in prayer. The opposite of planning is the rut. If you don't plan a vacation, you'll probably stay at home and watch TV. The natural unplanned flow of spiritual life sinks to the lowest ebb of vitality. There is a race to be run and a fight to be fought. If you want renewal in your life of prayer, you must plan to see it. This is incredibly true. (laughs) And practically speaking, the time in my life where my prayer life became most robust, had the most change, was when I started Uh, seminary, I had a class on prayer and I was required to pray for an hour a day. That was essentially the class. I had a few different reading assignments and papers that I had to write, but I had to pray an hour a day. And I remember the first couple days getting up, sitting at my desk, turning on the light, looking at the clock going, huh, an hour. (laughs) Okay. It's like, all right, I'm going to hit this hard. I prayed for everything I could possibly think of. And seven minutes later, I thought, huh, I got 53. Oh, no, no, I, got, I, got a, I can do this. And so I pulled out Valley of Vision and I read some of the prayers in the Valley of Vision. I'm like, okay, I got to be doing it. 25 more minutes. And so guess what I did later that day? I made a plan. And I said, okay, I'm going to start and I'm going to pray through a chapter of scripture. I want to start my prayers, aligning my thoughts with God. So I'm going to start with a chapter of scripture and I made an Excel document and I I had days of the week and I went, okay, who are the people that I want to pray for every day? I said, okay, I want to pray for my elders every day, but I can't pray for, I I don't, I don't want, I don't not want to turn the recording off. (laughs) It's not. I'm not going to pray for every elder every day, but I'm going to have a rotation where I pray for each elder twice a week. So I set up a rotation. I want to pray for my family every day. And I have a few people in my life that I want to pray for every day as well. And then who do I want to pray for multiple times a week? Okay, the guys in my small group, the families in my small group, and the people that I serve with in ministry. And I started making all these categories. Okay, how about the missionaries? How, how much do I think I can practically pray for them? And I did this. Okay, what are some lists of some things that I want to make sure that I'm praying about every day, like the Colossians passage? And I, would do that. And I had a plan. And all of a sudden, within a few days, that hour was no longer enough time. And, and it was just so helpful 
and so sweet when I had a prayer, uh, a plan for my prayer. And then I start doing my reading and my McShane's and I can't stop praying <laughs> because I conditioned myself to have worshipful fellowship with God around his word. And now my reading became more robust and, and more encouraging and more sweet. Now, listen, uh, full disclosure here. It's not all perfect every morning. There's times I got to get a cup of coffee. I got to get another cup of coffee. Oh, I'm drifting. Okay, so I, I don't want to paint a picture that like I have this just magical <laughs> experience with the Lord every morning. But but it, it, it did greatly increase my affections for the Lord. Um, there's just so much benefit in actually having a plan. And we know this just with our schedules, right? If you don't schedule anything, you don't know what you can say yes to or no to because you don't understand how it's going to impact everything else. And so you're just kind of floating through life, hoping that enough gets done. But if you have a schedule and you have a plan and you have to do items, it actually gives you more freedom than if you thought I don't have a plan because I want to have freedom. No, a plan gives you freedom to be able to adjust and and know how it impacts uh, all that's going on in your life. So create a plan, make it a priority. Do this, be prepared, be intentional with your prayer life. It's a gift from the Lord to you and structure or preparedness. isn't an obstacle to having your prayers be worshipful and heartfelt. It's actually an aid to that. What are some aids to a life dependent of prayer? Uh, well, readiness. Having having a heart that's eager to pray at all times in the spirit. To, to condition yourself to want to draw near to your Lord and Savior. It seems we're often more ready to talk about praying for others than to actually pray for them. Somebody shares something with you. Oh, I'll be praying for you. And we say that with really good intentions. And then we walk away and we don't do what we said we were going to do. Because we weren't ready. We didn't have a plan. Evernote is a great app to categorize things and to be able to quickly notate prayers. Somebody says, will you pray for me in this? Some things that I've implemented to be able to be faithful in that is if somebody says, will you pray for me in this? One option is, can we pray right now? I'd love to. And pray with them right now. Or, you know, take out your phone. Hey, I'm going to write that down. Write it down. And then have a, a plan to pray so that you can be uh, a woman of integrity, a person of integrity in, in what you commit to. Next, another aid is devotion and alertness. That's a blank and letter B. Alertness. Everybody with me on the outline? Did I lose anybody? So first we saw readiness, B, devotion and alertness in prayer. Uh, we're often too self-reliant. And the reality is we need to be spiritually desperate. We need God's grace we need God's power. We need his strength. We need his wisdom. We need to have devotion and alertness in prayer. It can't simply be something, well, my prayer life's really great. I pray in the shower and I pray when I'm driving in my car. And that's just, that's where my prayer life is. Those are great things. You shouldn't stop doing those things. But Jesus stepped away from the busyness of life, from the mundane moments to get intentional time of prayer with the Father. If it was good for Jesus, um, we should have specific time of prayer set aside, undistracted time of prayer. And 
we should pray in all of those other times as well. It's settling to simply be content with prayer in those other times only. Next, we need to cultivate a submissiveness and surrender. That's letter C, a submissiveness and surrender. Prayer that is consistent with what you know to be true about God. This is where scripture can be so helpful in your prayers because it forces you to pray what God has already revealed or promised or expressed in his word. There needs to be a a submissiveness and a surrender to him. This is a, a, a heart that seeks to be obedient to what God says. It's a yieldedness to the Lord. A yieldedness to his spirit. It's a setting aside of selfishness in your prayers. It's it's wanting to know the truth and coming under the truth in your prayer. It's a willingness to have your pride crushed in your prayer. Sometimes your prayer needs to start with God. This is what you have said. Help me to believe it. Help me to live it. My heart is hard right now. Would you please help soften me? And what does God say he loves to do to his people? He gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. And if you come to the Lord in humble, submissive surrender, you can have confidence that he's going to grant to you grace in those times. Another aid is cultivating spiritual concern. D. This is the last one on AIDS. is cultivating a spiritual concern. We must cultivate a concern for what really matters. Spiritual growth and maturity. We need to, to pray with a concern for ourselves to become complete in Christ. We need to have a concern for others to be complete in Christ. We need to have a, an urgency or a fervency in our prayer. Daniel, in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, when things seem to be unraveling for Israel... And he knows what God has promised, which is that they would experience a certain number of years of captivity. And that amount of time is coming to an end. And he's looking at the way that God's people should be and the way that they are. And there's a disconnect. And he's going, well, God promised this, but it was we're supposed to be this and we're not. What does he do? And in the moment of life crisis for Daniel, he runs to God in fervent prayer. Sackcloth and ashes. He seeks the Lord. There's a fervency in his prayer, a spiritual concern that he brings before the Lord. And I think it's helpful in this, in having a spiritual concern, what we find is that we'll pray a lot less for relief from various trials and we'll pray a lot more for spiritual growth in the trials. And that's God's intention for us in life's trials. Uh, God has actually told us there will be trials. God has never promised to help us through trials quickly, but he has promised that for the believer, trials produce conformity to Christ's image and maturity. So God, would you bring healing? But would you also bring trust until you do? Or if you should not, that would be okay. But help me to trust Help me to believe. Help me to be pleasing to you. Help me to testify of your goodness. Those types of prayers. We must cultivate a a concern for spiritual discernment that we know what is pleasing to the Lord in all circumstances. Now, 
As we consider prayer, the importance of prayer, some practical helps for prayer, I, I want you to, to lastly with me consider how prayer impacts uh, the disciplines, the wellspring disciplines. How, how, how should prayer impact your heart? Well, as I said just a few moments ago, Jesus slipped away for intentional, purposeful, devotional, worshipful, one-on-one prayer with the Father. It is arrogance. It is pride. It is lack of belief that would think that we don't need that. We, we need prayer. All those things that we looked at that Paul prays for, that he thanks God for, and that he gives petitions for, we desperately need God's assistance in all of those things. And prayer isn't to be this additional task that's a burden for the believer. Prayer is a grace and kindness from God to you and a means of being able to have humble, worshipful surrender and communion with your Savior. How sweet is that? How wonderful is that? And think of the good that God would love to do in one's life who humbly comes to him in petitions and prayers and thanksgiving and worship consistently. And then think about your home. Um, You cannot control anything in your home, ultimately. If you have children, young children, you might be able to say, sit in this chair. And they sit. And that's a level of control. That's good. That's not what I'm talking about. You can't predict what's going to happen next out of anybody's heart. But who does control all those things? God does. God does. So why would we want to start anywhere other than prayer when we think about our ministry to our homes? Why would we want to start somewhere other than going to the one who actually holds the power to create change and conformity to his desires and his will and his likeness? Why would we want to go anywhere other than there first? One of the greatest expressions of service and care and nurturing of your home is a consistent prayer life for those in your home. You can't control anything, ultimately, but God God does. God does. So think about the, the kind of opportunity that you have to honor God, to serve those around you through consistent, loving prayer, informed prayer, mature prayers, biblically founded prayers. And then the same for ministry. As you seek to care for others in this church, um, we're all gifted in different ways. And sometimes it's hard to be content with the way that God has gifted you. And that's a problem with us. That's sin in our hearts that we wouldn't be content with how God has gifted us. But listen, um, if you're a believer, you have the spirit of God. You can always pray. You can always pray. And God loves to use prayer to glorify himself through answering it. 
And when God makes promises about what he's going to do in his people, and you pray that God would be faithful to the promises of what he says he was going to do in his people, and then he answers it, that is pleasing to the Lord. That is a blessing for the church. That is an enormous privilege to be able to care for others through the ministry of prayer. And it would be foolish if we thought that we could do a lot of good things and serve well and don't need prayer for others. Pray for your elders. Please pray for us. Uh, Pray that we would not disqualify ourselves. Pray that we would have wisdom outside of ourselves to be able to shepherd and lead well. Pray for us that we would be able to handle God's word accurately. Pray for us that we wouldn't be duped into thinking that we need something other than God's word to be able to care for the flock. That we've got to invent some new creation to attract people or care for people. But that we would just stay our hearts on God's word. Pray that we would be good leaders of our households. Pray that we would be faithful in all of those things. Pray that we would be able to identify the need of the moment with herding sheep and speak God's truth into their life in helpful, winsome ways. Pray for us. Pray for each other. Pray for the women, your wellspring leaders, your small group leaders. Pray for women to disciple. Disciple women and pray for them. Pray often, pray diligently, pray humbly, pray trusting in God's goodness. Lastly, I want to draw your attention to the appendix appendix in your outline. And this is part of your homework. Um, praying scripture is such a helpful practice. Nothing has impacted my prayer life more than growing in a comfort with praying through scripture. And so there's a, a, a task for you, a homework assignment. And the first one there, um, under one, is an example. Okay, so this is, this is what I encourage you guys to do. Um, take a passage of scripture. For example, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Here's some ways to think through praying through scripture. Okay, First, identify the truths or promises in the text. In that text, there's a few different truths. God is faithful. God will not allow believers to be tempted beyond what they are able. God will provide a way of escape from temptation. And think through, for whom is this promise or truth applicable? In this case, it's written to the Corinthians as a truth for believers. Not all things are that way, especially when you're in your Old Testament. And you see God proclaim truths about what he's going to do for Israel. Sometimes it's tempting to want to impose those on ourselves. I know the plans I have for you, plans for prosperity and a future and land and all this stuff. Oh, God has a land for me. Um, Well, actually, that's his promise to Israel. (laughs) And yet there's things, precious things about God revealed in that, that you can pray, but you can't claim God's promises to others as God's being his promises to you and expect that. So there's an amount of discernment that takes place here. In this case, it's a truth that is written to the Corinthians and it is true for all believers. So we can pray this. 
How might this promise or truth inform my prayers? Well, I can reflect on the reality of God's faithfulness. I can pray that God would not allow me to be tempted beyond that which I can endure. And I can pray that God would provide that I would take the way of escape when tempted. And so it may be in a temptation, or maybe you would phrase it this way, if you were praying it at the beginning of the day, God, I'm being tempted, or God, today I will be tempted. And yet you were faithful. I know you are faithful. Would you please allow your faithfulness to abound in my life throughout this day or right now when I'm facing a temptation? I know you do not allow believers to be tempted beyond what they are able. And I plead with you now to help me withstand this temptation. I know there is a way of escape from this temptation. And I pray that you would help me to take it. Help me to endure this temptation that I might be pleasing to you and not sin. Simple example of just how to think through passages and pray. And there's some additional passages there for you to consider. And hopefully that'll just be a, a sweet template to, to add. Or um, if you're already praying through scripture, maybe it's just another tool in the toolbox. Um, but hopefully that'll be a blessing to you. Let me close our time in prayer and then you can split into your groups. God, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for dying Uh, so that we could be reconciled to you, so that we could approach the throne of grace, um, not dependent upon our own works to merit such a gift, but because of Christ and his perfect work. Lord, I pray that we would love you, that we would love to worship you through prayer, and Lord, that you would help us to be uh, mature uh, followers of you. Um, And Lord, I just pray that we would be, be diligent and humbled in the ways that we need to to constantly seek uh, growth in this discipline. And we want all of these things because we want to see Jesus glorified and we pray in his name. Amen.